Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Andre Rochester's art tackles a range of issues from social justice to mental health. But he also thinks it's important to create art that shows the broad range of black joy. His paintings include one of a black girl blowing bubbles and another of a black couple's wedding photo. Back in 2022, Rochester appeared on Connecticut Public's Where Art Thou? He talked about capturing the full black experience in his art. As a person of color, as a black person, there is more out there about us, there's more to us than police violence, than dealing with racism. Black joy is a form of resistance. Through it all, we still have reasons to celebrate ourselves. We still have much to be proud of. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about Black creatives in the arts. Later in the show, we'll hear from designer Busayo Olupona. She started a fashion brand that helped her reconnect with her Nigerian roots. But first, Andre Rochester. He's a fine artist, curator, and arts advocate based in Greater Hartford. Andre, it's great to have you on Disrupted. Well, thank you for having me. You know, before we talk about the art that you create, the community that you curate and bringing people together into art as this way of not just expressing, but healing, I'm curious how you discovered your love for or your talent in art. What was that journey for you? Oh, that, that goes back to early childhood. I was about seven years old when I got my first sketchbook. My, my dad needed to give me something to, to keep me occupied, and uh, it, it blossomed into something that uh, would eventually get me through some tough times growing up. And um, uh, I used it as a, a tool to uh, to cope with some of the, the challenges that I was dealing with at home. Uh, my mother was sick, and, and I was... Uh, taking care of her when, when nobody else was around and and uh you know as as uh as it would uh would be with with having a sick parent and, and being a child you know it can be very stressful it can be uh, a traumatic experience and art was there to get me through that that was my outlet um were it not for art being a part of my life i probably wouldn't be on the path that i'm currently on and i, I may or may not be here <laughs> um uh, so, so it's something that's very near and dear to me. It's uh, a, a personal thing. It's not uh, just some some gift that I have that I, I just kind of happen to to come across. It's it's a thing that has turned into something that that has been a tool for healing, and I continue to use it that way. Um, in high school was when I started to really take it more seriously. I started to get really good feedback from peers and from teachers and just from people who saw what I was doing, and, and they recognized that I had a talent and. I got involved in some uh, some youth opportunities to do murals and graphic design and stuff. And eventually I decided to to uh, go to college for art. So you've talked about the therapeutic piece mm -hmm. of art and the very deeply personal ways that you connected to art as this outlet. And I imagine also that being a young person, being a young Black person, being a young Black man, 
we don't always give spaces for people to express those challenges or to be able to be very upfront about the things that they're dealing with. And yet art wasn't just a personal thing for you. You were able to express it with and to others. Did you feel like it it was making you vulnerable to say, this is this art that I love and that I'm channeling into? And as you said, you, you were creating murals as a young person or sharing it with others. What was that like for you to then open it up and say, this is what I do as well? Oh, so as far as the vulnerability in my work, that really didn't come until adulthood. Um, and I was just drawing random things that I set up on, on shelves and stuff in my in my bedroom. Uh, that that was my my way of just kind of you know creating. Um, but as an adult, I started to take the the storytelling part of of being an artist uh, more seriously, and I included personal narratives in my work. And I started to talk about my own experiences and and um, you know just just sharing my story to to let other people know that they weren't alone. And in, 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 in a sense, I'm I'm doing what I wanted someone to do for me by by saying, "Hey, I, I've been through something too. I'm with you. I understand." And so I'm presenting it in such a way that it's not me always depicted in the piece. There's different figures, there's different things, there's text sometimes, there's maybe a scene or something like that in in the the piece, but it's all about the emotion that's connected to what's being depicted. It's not necessarily about the person per se in the painting. There's a power in your art. There's a connection. There's also this deep space for reflection that's embedded in the art that you do. And I'm going to ask you a question that I know every artist hates, but that I know our <laughs> listeners are curious. And and that is, again, forgive me, but that is how do you describe the style of art or your approach to art? And I know we can't put it into a container and a box, but I want to get our listeners this sense of when they see a piece this is what Andre Rochester represents. How would you describe your approach? Well, it's funny because I'm inspired by a lot of artwork that looks nothing like mine. Um, but I'm very much a contemporary artist uh, in, in that I, I have a contemporary style. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I necessarily fit into a specific genre, but I'm inspired by a lot of different things. Everything from graffiti to surrealism. Um, it. I, I don't know if you can really like classify what I'm doing. Um, I'm not sure if there's like a particular movement that I would necessarily belong to, but my my painting is acrylic. It's um, more portraits and figures. And I like to paint people as much as I like to paint about people. Um, it includes a lot of messaging uh, about social awareness, uh, some social justice in there. It's mental health uh, is a subject that that I uh, address in some of my work as well. Um, dealing with adversity and overcoming that, uh, getting past our struggles is is a, a theme that that has been recurring in my work. Um, right now, I'm kind of like I'm at a point where where I'm kind of trying to find my next direction. Um, I want to explore black joy and define that for myself. I want to just look at, you know, I just, I just want to look at the world around me and, and see what, you know, what, are, what is the beauty that I can, I can pull from the things that I see and just kind of, you know, figure out what, what's my next move. 
in doing that. Uh, I'm not at a point where I feel like I need to kind of follow a certain path. I just want to create. I'm just really anxious to to make something. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, but it does. It totally <laughs> answers the question <laughs> because what I hear from you, Andre, is that you are always curious. You are always interested. You are always open to allowing whatever it is that you're connected to, to guide you. And I think that is very different from people who tell me, you know, when I talk to musicians, for example, who say that their style is this, and yet they are also influenced by other styles, by other artists, by, you know, the convo that they overheard in the coffee shop that comes into that. And I think that speaks to the power of art, that art can't be contained. It can't just be defined. And what it means that I see in your work is that you aren't just reacting to what you see around you. You are also kind of knitting together those social messages, those images, and the spaces, the everyday spaces that people encounter art. Why do you think it's important for you to encode some of that social messaging because you're not shy about confronting big issues and big challenges, but you do it through art in a way that I think when those topics can be scary and overwhelming, art connects people in a different way. Why is that important to you? Well, it's about having a conversation. Sometimes those conversations are not easy. And I think that art is a great way to create an atmosphere where we can have tough conversations through a shared experience. We're all looking at this this image or series of images and we're we're going to see something, we're going to feel something, we're going to think about it. We should all discuss it and explore what what is that? What what does this thing mean to us? And if there's a problem being presented to us, how do we find a solution for it? We can all relate to it, right? So I'm sure we can relate to the need that this thing makes us uncomfortable. And we need to do something about it. We can all we can all understand that. And so so hopefully the dialogue that happens leads to solutions. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. And that's OK. But it needs to be addressed. I keep thinking about James Baldwin as you're talking and Baldwin saying, you know, nothing that isn't faced can't be fixed mm-hmm. and that we have to confront. We have to see. You use the words we and us quite a bit, Andre, which to me means that you are very aware of that power of community and connection and using the spaces where you are to empower others, but to be in community with others. You describe yourself as an an arts advocate. What does that mean for you? So to to me, advocacy looks like creating opportunities for other people, for, for artists uh, specifically, to thrive or, or to at least have some kind of chance at, at doing business as an artist, uh, some kind of chance at, you know, seeing what it's like to make a living as an artist. Um, I'm fortunate to have the opportunities that have come my way. I'm very grateful for that. I also look at my peers and I see some of the struggles that they go through because I have those same struggles. And when I come across an opportunity where I can maybe alleviate some of that, I make sure I take it. Mm 
<laughs> um, I've worked on projects that aren't necessarily about me and they're more about creating opportunity for other people. And that is a very much a, a big part of my work. I'm not just a painter. I'm a person who believes in helping other people and developing other people. And so, you know, whether it's an opportunity for an artist to make money or opportunity for them to become a better professional, I make it a point to incorporate that into the work that I do. That was Andre Rochester, a fine artist, curator, and arts advocate in Greater Hartford. Coming up, more from Andre. We'll talk about the theme of this year's Black History Month, African Americans in the Arts. We have contributed so much to world culture, uh, you know, not just American culture, the entire world's culture. And later we talked to fashion creator Busayo Olopona. to talk about how she went from being an attorney to working in fashion. And I remember being so terrified because I had made this declaration that I was starting a clothing line and didn't know the first thing about it. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we're talking with Black creators who are disrupting the arts. Before we continue the conversation with artist Andre Rochester, hear a few words from Andre's mentor. My name is Stanley Cromwell, and I'm Andre Rochester's mentor. I was born into a family of artists from Guyana, South America. I came from a very vibrant background, a very vibrant culture. Everyone in my family were creative people. My mother, was a seamstress and also a craftsperson. My father was a commercial artist. It is only natural that uh, that was something that I gravitated to. It was uh, somewhat like a, a lifeline to me. I would say I met Andre in the late 90s. Andre has been a very wonderful and ambitious young man. As a matter of fact, um, he is like a son to me. He reminds me of my late son. He graduated from Art Institute of Boston and he passed away in 2009. It's one thing to be an artist, but an artist that lacks passion, to me, is just, well, you, you, you just have a title. You don't have that bite, that backbone, that spine. And Andre has 
audacity to say what's on his mind without diluting it to appease the ears of others. And I, I respect that a lot. I respect that, especially from a, a, a younger person, a younger person that says what's on your mind, but at the same time, it's never personal. You uh, still give you the respect and give you love. I feel deep down in my heart that um, younger, young, young artists and older artists could work together cohesively. Uh, I am Andrew's mentor, in, but in direct, in, in opposite ways, he is uh, my mentor too. I am his mentee in a way that most time people hear the word mentor, they think in terms of um, the older guy giving wisdom to the younger guy. Well, it's just, it's not necessarily so. They have um, a lot of things that I've learned, I've learned from the younger generation, including my granddaughter, who is just nine years old. My relationship is with Andre is one that I, I hope could last for eternity. Um, I see him as someone that I could pass the torch onto in terms of wisdom, understanding, and I see him as a very stable person. And I credit that stability for the fact that he's a family man. A lot of times it's difficult to keep up with artists because they we tend to move around. We tend to follow the money. But the, the fact that uh, he is a family man it gives me the kind of assurance that if my chapter in life would be coming to a closure, I would like to entrust him to have a voice in my art when I'm gone. That's the trust I have in him. That was Andre Rochester's mentor, Stanwyck Cromwell. And now, more from our conversation with artist Andre Rochester. One of the other pieces that I think is critical for us to address is that you are an advocate and you are an advocate for artists right here in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And I think people often think, you know, given our proximity to New York or to Boston or Philadelphia, that we have to look elsewhere for brilliance and for beauty. And you have been so vested in empowering artists right where they are, of showcasing the talent that is right here, and of connecting artists to opportunities in spaces where they may not have seen them or felt like they were welcomed and supported in doing that. Why do you use that approach of, you know, your work speaks broadly and globally? What's the beauty of connecting with artists right here in Connecticut? Well, when you hear no a lot and you have to make your yeses, you you start to, you know, you, you start to realize that sometimes you have to be the one that makes the change. And it went from me having to, you know, try to create the opportunities that I, I wanted for myself to then you know getting the, the the notoriety i guess to you know to get into certain spaces and have certain conversations about what people need and and speak from my own experience my my shared experience with other artists and people are listening so i take advantage of that you know folks folks are are giving me their ear <laughs> and 
as long as I have their ear, I'm going to say what you know what I what I feel needs to be said, and I'm going to work to uh, make certain things happen so that artists like myself don't have to continue struggling. Like we shouldn't be starving artists in this day and age. That that shouldn't be a real thing. You know, that's a that's a fairy tale. That's a, a story. That's you know, it's it's cool to hear, but it should never be reality, especially with uh, so many tools that are out there, so many resources that are out there. Uh, and so I just want to make sure that people are at least aware of the talent that exists here and that folks are aware of the need for those resources to ensure that Connecticut can stand out as a, a place where where there are, in fact, very, very talented artists. There are very impactful artists. A lot of world famous artists actually have made Connecticut their home. And uh, through my work at, at UConn Health Center, I've, I've learned this. Uh, we have some world-renowned artists in that collection there. Uh, so that tells me that, you know, although some may not think of it this way, our state really is an arts hub. It's not just a stop in between two major cities. It's really a thriving artist community that kind of goes under the radar a bit and that's for visual arts that's for performing arts as well uh you know across the whole spectrum of the arts uh there's so much talent out here that just needs to be seen and heard and experienced um i'm just doing my part to make sure that that happens you are quite humble because I think you're doing a lot more than just your part. You, you are overseeing fellowships for artists. You are looking at murals as a way of drawing connections in a world and in a space that feels often hostile to that connection. You're curating that. Mm -hmm. And you are at tables and in spaces where it's not enough to just be glad to be at the table. You are using your voice. You were, for example, a part of the transition team for Hartford's uh, newly installed or newly inaugurated mayor. What do you see as a major challenge in Connecticut of being able to support artists in the fullest way possible? And as you said, to see Connecticut as a hub for art and not just a stopover. What, what's a major challenge here in the state? Uh, a, a major challenge, honestly, is, is the professional development for artists. And that's not to say that folks don't know how to do business or, or that they, they don't have... Um, you know the the right the right temperament or attitude sometimes they just don't know certain things about business and that can be a hindrance for them and with that comes a lack of confidence when you don't understand something you're like the only person in a room that doesn't understand something you, you don't necessarily want to speak up but now i'm that person who's, who's there speaking up I'm that person who was like, okay, well, you know, I've, I've recognized this challenge amongst my peers and amongst other people that, that I've interacted with. I'm here to ensure that maybe we can, we can provide a resource to teach them. Maybe we can provide some kind of opportunity for them to grow. Um, and when it comes to, to the confidence boosting, if we have an opportunity, like a paid opportunity for an artist to have their work seen, in a very big way. For instance, I, I did a project with the city of Hartford to put artwork along Albany Avenue on bus shelters and electrical boxes. That's huge, right? For me, it's huge because I curated an entire street. But for the 30 artists that participated, 
their art is being seen in a very public way. That's something to be proud of because the community selected them. Now you have some validation in your work and like you're, you're doing it for, for a good reason. You're doing it and it's loved. It's accepted. It's embraced. I did not select those artists. The community did. I just guided them through the process. And it was designed like that on purpose so that folks would understand that they, well, they'd be reassured rather that they have something special to, to share and they would see that the community does, in fact, appreciate what they have to offer. Back in December, my family and I spent a lot of time at the Walton Art Gallery in Virginia that's owned by a very dear family friend. And a lot of the conversation in that space was about the need for intergenerational, multi-generational engagement around art and the ways that young people could learn from elders, but also that elders could learn from young people. And I see that in your approach as well, of, of sort of building spaces, but also listening to and affirming spaces. So it's not about saying, this is the right way to approach art, or this is high art, but about how do we listen to those voices that are all around in community. That brings us, Andre, as we are about to close out Black History Month and the theme this year about African-Americans and art as sort of the guiding theme throughout that celebration. When you think about that theme of African-Americans and art, what does that mean for you? Or how does that connect to the brilliance that you are displaying every day? Well, I'm, I'm gonna go uh, so far as to say we, we are the originator of it all. Um, people originated in Africa, <laughs> like that, that has been proven. We have contributed so much to world culture, uh, you know, not just American culture, the entire world's culture, um, through music, through visual arts, through culinary arts, I mean, through, you name it. it, it came from our ancestors and we need to acknowledge that every opportunity that we have that's something to be very proud of to know that we we come from a people that set the bar a people that that literally you know decided like this is this is what it will be this is how we will express ourselves and, and let it grow right we plant the seed um and to your point about elders uh, I, I want to shout out an elder, uh, Stan Cromwell. He's a visual artist based in Bloomfield. He has been a mentor of mine for a number of years, uh, well over a decade now. And, you know, he, he this is a guy who's in his late 70s who has taken me under his wing. He's been around for, for a while in, in the Hartford art scene, and he's had a, a significant amount of experiences. And, and one reason why I want to shout him out specifically is because Stan... Stan understands the 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 back and forth that needs to happen between mentor and mentee, and that it's learning for both people. I've taught Stan some things, and he's taught me many things, and we we just have that relationship, we have that bond, and that needs to happen more uh, amongst artists. That is something that we need to ensure there's a place for, uh, ensuring that you know our our elders in the arts are recognized and appreciated and loved and cared for 
and we need to seek their guidance just as much as they need to learn from us about what's going on in the here and now and how it's been inspired from the things that they've done and how things are growing and how we can possibly collaborate. Here's to learning and creating and building together. Andre Rochester is a fine artist, curator, and arts advocate. Andre, thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, we'll talk to Busayo Olupona. She's the creative director of Busayo, the fashion company that she created. All I am sharing and what I hope to do is to share my own curiosity as I reconnect, because I, you know, I've spent 30 years in America. As I reconnect and I relearn some of the things I lost through immigration. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking with Black creators who are making an impact in the arts. Busayo Olopona is creative director and founder of Busayo. It's an apparel and accessories company that uses hand-dyed Nigerian prints and textiles. Busayo has had a long journey into the fashion industry, and it started when she was a child. She was born in Boston and spent most of her childhood in Nigeria, but she eventually moved to California at the age of 12. I remember the hair I wore when we first got from Nigeria was like royally mocked, right? Like I would get called all these names. And the clothes, I remember I wore like one of these Adirai dresses and it was like, what is she wearing? What's on her hair? And the same things that were mocked when I was a kid is how I'm making my living, you know? That was Busayo in a video about her participation in an accelerator program for emerging designers. When I spoke with Busayo, she joined us from a stairwell amid the bustle of New York Fashion Week. Busayo, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. It is an absolute joy and honor to speak to you guys. I asked Busayo what it's like to be part of Fashion Week. You know, it is... I've built Busayo over the last 11 years. It took a very long time to get here. And I started the brand while I was a practicing attorney that just had a dream to create clothes that I wanted to see and I wanted to wear. And if somebody had told me then that I would be here now um, in this space, sharing the work with large groups of people, um, Fashion Week is complicated. There's what people see, the runway shows, and then there's what I call the actual business of fashion where we're setting up in a showroom and we're inviting buyers to come from all around the world, all around the country to come look at our work. And so that's really the kind of commerce of fashion. And that is what I'm interested in. How do we create economic opportunity, both clearly for myself, but for my team here, but also my team in Nigeria that helped make the clothes and really share the cultural tradition, the rich technology that underlying a lot of these textiles, um, these are textile traditions that go back hundreds of years and sharing them with a larger audience and doing it in a spirit of generosity and education and enthusiasm for the culture from which they've come from. And then more importantly, I think for me is really um, what I call diasporic connection and education. How do I connect black people across the oceans um, I really believe we are one and, you know, time and 
both stops and trauma is what has divided us as a people. And so part of my work and that really underlines my work is how do I share Nigerian culture, Yoruba culture with us all globally? And actually it's been really fascinating is that there's so much growth um, of the culture uh, in diaspora. So it, it's, it's a very long answer to a short question, but I think about Fashion Week as the opportunity to really have that cons cons consumer touch point where I share the work in a really present way to stores and people that are going to bring it to your to your hometowns in six months. You are, in many ways, the manifestation of a diasporic connection, of an appreciation for cultures and histories and traditions that many people overlook or just now discovering. And I wonder how that experience of growing up in Nigeria and the United States, of, as you said, being a lawyer before you pursued this dream, how all of those threads come together to influence the work that you do. That also comes with a particular heaviness of being the person at the core of that. How do you manage that, of being at the core, promoting that connection and realizing, here's the dream, let's go with it? Ooh, what a beautiful question. Um, I think, you know, I grew up, I came here when I was 12 years old. I was actually born here, but raised in Nigeria. And I um, came here when I was 12 in um, a very small California town and didn't, you know, it was, you know, I was an immigrant, I was a black child in this space, and it was really challenging. And I really began to learn so much. I really think about the African American experience in this country um, is who really held me. You know, James Baldwin is who taught me. Like, I, you know, when I think about the people who helped me kind of survive the challenges of being an immigrant, it was really the stories of black American people who I think really allowed people to immigrate in this country because they complicated the very meaning of what it meant to be an American from the very beginning. And there's no other place in the world that you can immigrate from anywhere in the world and have an opportunity to be part of the fabric of the place. And I really believe that Black Americans laid the groundwork for that. And so when I really started thinking about my work, um, I wanted to be, to be a vessel through which I can connect Black people who were the you know, descendants of slaves, who perhaps feel cut off from uh, African culture, specifically you know, Yoruba, you know, when you really begin to look at how many um, descendants of slaves came from Nigeria, it is the majority, really, right? And then Yoruba culture specifically, you see so many overlaps between African-American traditions and Yoruba tradition, which is the tribe that I come from. And so when I started doing the work, initially it was like, I want to make clothes. And the most people that my first supporters were Black women in New York. Those were the, my customers, right? And so I was like, well, let me just tell the story of these clothes. And they just loved, they connected with that narrative. They connected with the stories that I told, not just about the clothes, but from the place that the clothes came from. And so the idea of being a vessel through which you can connect across oceans First of all, what a profound opportunity, right? What a profound opportunity. And also I am so humbled by the question because all I am sharing and what I hope to do is to share my own curiosity as I reconnect, because I've you know, spent 30 years in America, as I reconnect and I relearn some of the things I lost through immigration. And I also hope that we can also use it as a way for us as black people to understand that we are people that come from 
deep, deep traditions, deep technologies that our ancestors have fomented and have passed on to generation to generation. And it is our responsibility to continue to uphold these traditions and see them as technologies, right? We don't, we don't even use that. I think we're intimidated by that word. But in fact, these are technologies. These are kind of advanced collections of human understanding of how to design a fabric. This dress I'm, I'm wearing started off white through manipulation, through all sorts of techniques, we're able to create beautiful garments. But that extends to our food, it extends to so many areas of cultural production. And so um, that's where, what I'm enthusiastic about. And I just like to bring people along for the ride. Let's talk about the bringing people along for the ride, because what you have just captured is the many ways that we become vessels for our experience, the many ways that we become the creators of technologies, of traditions. And if we're honest, often don't get credit for that. And I'm thinking of the work that you do now in this era of fast fashion, of mass production, of people who take African prints without actually honoring the tradition and the labor that goes into it. Talk to us about that business aspect, because you started talking about, you know, the work behind the scenes of being involved in a fashion week. But what about that piece of running a business in a space that often does not honor creators who look like you or who create what you do? So things are changing and improving. I will say that, as, as I said, I started the business 10 years ago. And for, for actually, what am I saying? It's now 11 years. Um, it, in the beginning, was very challenging. You know, I think the murder of George Floyd um, really did move the pendulum a little bit. You know, it's inch, you know, you take one step forward, you take two steps back. I do think with regards to fashion, the black squares and the kind of uproar around the representation of designers in stores, in department stores, I do think it shifted the pendulum a bit. I think that stores that perhaps had not given, you know, black designers space, you know, were forced and compelled to kind of do some self-examination and look at themselves and say, okay, maybe we need to do a better job in this area. Now, the pendulum is swinging back a little bit. You know, this is no longer 2021. I think some of the resistance on the DEI space um, has also kind of spread to kind of this more, um, I think this more expansive view of what it looks like for to have increased representation of Black brands at the department store level. But 20, let's not get it wrong. I do think 2020, no, I, I know it changed things a little bit. So from a business perspective, it is still a challenge, right? We make all of our textiles by hand in Nigeria. One major problem where Nigeria continues to have is that, you know, Chinese producers come to Nigeria, they see the designs. These are not even just the printed Ankara designs. Now these that are hand batiked, they're building in the inconsistencies that you get from hand batik work into their printed textiles. If people really, really think about what I'm saying, it's kind of terrifying. So part of what makes batiking and adire, the tradition that I work in, really interesting is that because it's made by hand, there's all you know human inconsistencies. So now mass producers who are mechanizing these, these fabrics, they're now building those inconsistencies into the design and really flooding the market with like cheap production. Um, but I have come to believe like anything that 
I, it's important, any industry you want to enter, you learn the business, you learn the market, you learn how to, like, what is the cadence of the industry that you're entering? And you must begin to participate in it. So I believe that as long as I keep creating great work, I keep connecting with our customers, that the imitation cannot touch the brilliance and the genius of our human ingenuity. It cannot, because I am one step ahead of you. And oh, you can come back and copy what I made last season and have fun with that, but I've already moved on to the next thing. And so that is the belief that I use to guide me um, as I continue to do this work. But it is very discouraging. You know, you create something and the next thing you know, you know, and this has happened, you see it like everywhere three months later, you know. Um, but I also want people listening to, for whatever dream, whatever industry they're in, you know, to, you can take the lesson, which is learn that, that industry and then fully engage and fully participate because it's important to carve a room for yourself, not just for yourself, but for those that are going to come behind as well. I feel like that line you just said, I am one step ahead of you, needs to be a tagline for something. <laughs> I want to see that on a print with the beautiful <laughs> handwork behind it because it speaks to, you mentioned you are creating opportunities. You're not just creating fashion, which has its beauty, right? But you are creating opportunities for people in Nigeria. You are contributing to the culture and the economy and you are reminding people that Africa as a continent is beautiful, it's diverse, it's monolithic, just as Nigeria has its own traditions and beauties there. I'm curious how you came to learn this particular approach to fashion, because that hand dyeing process is so intricate, but it's also interwoven in the culture. How did you come to learn it? So, you know, they always say, you know, what necessity is the mother of invention, right? So I was 20, no, third, oh my God, 25, 26, and really wanted to reconnect with Nigeria. As I said, it came here when I was 12. I started going back to visit my aunt, and I'd also started my career at a law firm in New York City. And I wanted to dress, you know, there was about eight of us Black women in my class of law, in my law firm class, amazing group of uh, cohort. And I wanted to start dressing, you know, just bring a little bit of an African edge to my aesthetic, right? But I'm in a very, very white shoe environment, very white environment. So in order for me to be able to wear, quote unquote, African prints, right, which is, that's a whole nother show. So people say, what does that mean? But you get the idea, like colorful, bright, kind of ethnically inspired prints. I had to give it my own twist, right? Because I couldn't really walk in with like what I would wear to like, you know, bam, dance Africa to work. So I had to create my version of it, right? And so that's really how it started. And so on a trip to Nigeria, I started learning and apprenticing with um, Oga Karamo, who's a gentleman who has lived in Nigeria for 30 years from the Gambia, who makes these fabrics and works in this Nigerian tradition. But he, you know, they also have a version of it in the Gambia. And I started learning from him. And I started being an apprentice and started making clothes for myself, or I'd have clothes made in Nigeria, but I would design the prints and I would wear it in New York. And my friends at the law firm were like, where did you get this from? We love this. And this community of women were like, let's have a, you should do a pop-up. And through, you know, different resources, I had my first pop-up. And then once you take that first step and you begin to declare to the world that you're doing something and you want to do something, people start asking you about it. And I remember being so terrified because I had made this declaration that I was starting a clothing line and didn't know the first thing about it. 
And almost, and this is sad to say, almost like didn't want it to succeed because then I wouldn't have to do it, right? But we had this first pop-up and it was a huge hit. And next thing you know, people were like, oh, when's the next one? And so now I have to take the next step and the next step and the next step. And I think that what was making me so afraid was that I didn't know all the steps to get to this spot that I'm sitting, right? And it was, it took a very long time. But what I now know to be true is that you just take the next step. You can't know how you're going to land to, you know, Saks Fifth Avenue and Nordstrom and Neiman's, which are all places that we're at now. And if someone had told me that at the time, I wouldn't have believed them. And it couldn't have happened through any thought. It was literally an organic progression and taking one step at a time, but also I think being a good student, right? And moving in humility, you know, and knowing that you don't know a lot of things. So you want to learn and people will teach you when you move that way. And I've been the beneficiary of such profound generosity um, from all, all, all sectors, you know, um, I couldn't have done it without an incredible community of mentors and supporters and cheerleaders. That approach to moving in humility is critical, whether it's fashion or education or law, or just waking up every day with intention to say, I don't know what's coming, but I know that I deserve the goodness that will come. And I think Busayo, Often women, particularly women of color, will talk ourselves out of that because we don't know all the steps that are aligned. But you took the first step and look what it has created. What are you most looking forward to about your future in fashion, your future in business, just the ways that your dreams are creating spaces and that you are creating spaces for others? What are you most looking forward to? Oh, wow. You know, I come from a generation of teachers. My father, my grandfather was a pastor, a minister. And I know that it is like, I want to teach more than anything. I definitely love the clothes, but I want to also be a teacher. And I want to share that it is possible to build. It is possible to build a company. It is possible. You know, we went from employing three people in Nigeria to now we employ about 30 people. Um, and so I know that it is profoundly possible to kind of transform and create, transform people's lives through economic opportunity. So if I could split myself in three, I would literally scale versions of Busayo in other spaces within Nigeria, but it is not really possible. And so um, I, you know, I think that I just want to stay with fashion for now and perhaps write a book about my entrepreneur journey and how I built Busayo to be what it is today so that it could be a guide for other people who perhaps want to build their own businesses. And I love public speaking. So I definitely want to be more of a public speaker. That's one of my favorite things to do. So that's definitely something else I'm looking forward to. You are quite talented and you have a way of, of bringing people into not just your experience, but tapping into their own experiences and dreams. My last question to you is somewhat related. What do you want people to know about Nigeria, about this country and this, this space and these people who are so essential to you? What do you want the world to know? Wow. Thank you for that question. Um, on my flight here, I sat next to somebody who was an expat in Nigeria and was saying some really horrible and difficult things about Nigeria. It was horrible for me to hear. And he said, there are no standards in this country. The people are corrupt. And mind you, this is an expat who works for a Western company who has been, you know, milking our country for its resources for the last 
hundred years since since oil was discovered. So you could probably figure out what company I'm talking about. Um, Nigerians are the most hardworking people I have ever met. I am humbled by my team on a daily basis. They make me want to weep. It is a very challenging country. It is a country in which corruption is real and there are elements of the culture, country and the leadership that are very corrupt. But the average Nigerians themselves are hardworking. We are doing something that people said could never be done. Not just making great clothes, we are making it in Nigeria. This is a country that was not known for manufacturing. And part of the third pillar of my mission, I have three pillars. One is create great clothes, create great jobs in the U.S. and in Nigeria. And the third pillar is make Nigeria a place that is known for manufacturing and start with my company. So the idea that we can inculcate standards, as this gentleman said, like we have standards, we can create anything we want. We are a rich, rich, profoundly rich country with a lot of natural and human resources. And my job is to just be the vessel through which I can bring the things I have learned and the incredible opportunity I've had educationally and that the United States have given me and share it with people there. So that not because they can't do it, but because, you know, you don't know. Sometimes you're not exposed to information. And so I just consider myself a vessel for God's dreams and vision for people's lives in Nigeria. And I'm just the means through which it's being actualized. And so my intention is that we're going to create a you know large-scale manufacturing and make clothes that are thoughtful and intentional um, in Nigeria. And people said it couldn't be done. And let me tell you, just watch me. It can be done and you are doing it. And so we are grateful that you are that vessel and that you walk in that purpose. Busayo Olapona is creative director and founder of Busayo. It's an apparel and accessories company that utilizes Nigerian prints and textiles. Busayo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. Our interns are Scout Raimundo and Sajina Shrusta. Many thanks to the Yale Schwartzman Center, the Yale School of Art, and the Afro-American Cultural Center at Yale. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. And if you love an episode, please remember to send us a comment. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Let's keep creating and disrupting.